Tonight we are taking our cues from a psalmist who passionately loves the word, the Lord and his word. With the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit of God, the psalmist faithfully and accurately penned all that was already in his heart and mind. It grew out of who he already was. Some of us may be starting with this psalm from an opposite direction. We may not be where the psalmist is. We may think we could never be where the psalmist is. But that's okay. That is why God placed Psalm 119 in his Bible. With the help of the Holy Spirit, this psalm, and with our own wholehearted cooperation, we can reach a similar place of love for God and his word. Just like the psalmist. Does that give us hope? Yeah, I think so. Let's think about some things. As stated in your think about question, Psalm 119 has 176 verses. What did you conclude that enabled the psalmist to write such a magnificent testimony to God in his word? Anybody want to offer a viewpoint? What would, what would be going on in the heart and mind of the psalmist to be able to pen such a magnificent account of that length? He had to be, it had to be overflowing with love for the Lord and love for his word, and it would not have happened without some real commitment. And so... And we see that and we can be challenged and instructed by it. If each of us were asked today by the Lord Jesus to write a similar psalm about God and his word, would it require 176 verses or far less? Why or why not? You can't, none of us can use the excuse, well, I'm not a writer, okay? It was a passion for God and his word that produced 176 verses to the glory of God. We're going to think about this challenge over and over about in order for this psalm to be really real to us, can we reproduce something like it in our own words to honor the Lord as well? This is a, there is a silly question sometimes asked, which came first, the chicken or the egg? We do not have to wonder which came first in the life of the psalmist, reading God's word or loving God's word. Careful reading and meditating always come first. Then love for the Lord automatically follows. You cannot love something that you do not know. Psalm 119 is majestic in its scope. It reminds us of a glorious poetic statement penned by uh, Frederick Martin Lehman. If we could put that up. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You know, when when you meditate long and hard on Psalm 119, these kinds of poems 
have an extra meaning. <laughs> and so uh, I just thought it would be good for us to refresh our memories about that. Another thing we need to consider is that biblical love is an action word and not an emotion. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Genuine love for God is demonstrated not through emotions only, but through active obedience to God's word. The love for God and his word described in his psalm is also conveyed through action words. Let's think about this a little more. If I asked this group to raise their hands if they love the Lord and his word, probably all of us would raise our hands. If I asked this group to raise their hands if they love the Lord and his word like the psalmist loves, how many hands would be raised? What acts or actions of love toward the Lord were in the psalmist's life that may be missing from ours? something we all need to look at in our own lives. Does the Lord Jesus Christ deserve the depth of love that the psalmist cries out for? That's, an ab that's a rhetorical question. Of, absolutely he does. Does his word deserve the depth of love that the psalmist cries out for? Absolutely. If we agree, then let's participate this evening with our whole hearts. We may not love God's word like the psalmist right now, but the intention of this psalm is to get us to that point. It's not too late and it's never too late. If this is what you want, let's stand and ask the Lord to improve us just like the psalmist. So why don't we stand and let's just ask the Lord to speak to our hearts this evening. Our Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this great psalm. Uh, we thank you for the, what you brought in the life of the psalmist to allow him to write all these things that uh, clearly and accurately uh, described all that was going on in his character and in his actions and in his emotions and his love for you. And Father, we, we know... Uh, that unless you do something, unless you do what only you can do tonight, um, all these words will fall on deaf ears. And Father, we don't want that to happen. Uh, the world is getting worse. The time is getting short. Uh, we need to be men of action now. And we need to be driven and guided and instructed and built up by your word. And so, Father, we just... Um, ask your Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us tonight and may your word come alive as only you can do. There, there's no human teacher capable of accurately and properly handling your word. It, only you can do that. And so, Father, we, we ask you to do tonight what only you can do. For the glory of your Son, we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> Okay, here's some really deep and profound observations. In Psalm 119, there are 176 verses. This is one massive psalm, okay? 
What does its size tell us about the love the psalmist had for both the Lord and his word? Okay, here's the profound conclusion. Big love for God and his word, big psalm. You were supposed to ooh and all at how profound that was. Okay, never mind. Is it logical that the longest chapter in the Bible focuses on God and his word? What does this tell us about God's priorities? Okay, God is number one in all things. God's word reflects his character, therefore it is a main priority. This psalm contains God's words, but it was not written by a mindless robot directed by God. It was co-authored with the Holy Spirit by a real man just like us. This psalm is a real result from the overflow of the psalmist's heart about God and his Bible. Could we write a similar psalm from the overflow of our hearts because we love the Lord and his word deeply? And what we're hoping is that at the end of 10 weeks, we would be much more inclined and better equipped and prepared to do just that. So, <clears throat> All right, let's get into the meaty stuff. In this section of Psalm 119, verses 33 to 48, there are righteous pleas to the Lord, things the psalmist is begging for. There are noble intentions that the psalmist intends to do. And there are some delightful results from doing those things. We will look at all three. If we look at the last verse of this section, it seems to be a really good framework for what we're going to talk about tonight. The psalmist in verse 48 says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Okay, we see three key components in that verse. Lifting hands, loving God's word, meditating on God's word. For tonight, we will not consider this intention by the psalmist to be a literal raising of hands. What then does such a posture indicate? He's describing an inward manifestation, an outward manifestation of an inward desire for God's word. If you picture, you know, some of us have grandkids and uh, or we've been around little kids and you'll see sometimes when they want something, if they want to be picked up or you have something they want, they will start walking towards you with their hands out. Okay, and it's obvious what they want. They want something from you. Well, when the psalmist says, I will lift my hands, he's doing that. I want from you, Lord, something from your word. And I want your blessing. I want your wisdom. I want your insights. I want to know what your rules are. So he's asking like a little child would be asking for something that they want. Why does the psalmist want it so badly? He loves it. He cannot get enough of it. What will he do with God's word when he receives it? He will meditate on it. He will think it through to mine the depths of its wisdom and plow the breadth of its applications to a righteous life. It not only conveys how to live a fruitful life, what's one of the most delightful things about God's word is it tell us, tells us who God is. 
It, it is my prayer tonight that we all came hungry for God's word because we love it. If so, we'll spend this evening reading and meditating on it, just like the psalmist said. So let's start with the first righteous plea in our section and noble intention. Let's read this verse together, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. So we got some key words here. And as we think we discussed in week one, there's statutes, law, and commandments. These are other words for God's word, the Bible. And then there's some key requests. Teach me, give me, lead me. And then there are some key conscious intentions. Okay, deliberate things he's going to do. Read, know, and obey throughout the remainder of life. Obey with our entire being, heart, mind, soul, and will. To have an all-consuming passion to live for the Lord. And when we see this passion described in Psalm 119, it makes us think of what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. In Matthew 22, 36-38, uh, a man asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So there might be many, many commandments in the Bible and we probably don't keep them all, but what would be the one that we should never, ever ignore? Well, that would be the first and the greatest one, okay? And that's to love the Lord with all our being. And we see the psalmist pouring out his heart to that same effect. And the last intention he has is to be led by the Lord to do what he wants us to do, not what we want to do. How's this going to happen? Well... Do we ask the Lord once and then personally do nothing? Would that work? How about by praying only? Yes or no? What is praying? Praying is talking to who? Okay, and we, if we want to hear from God, what do we do? We read his word and we study it and he speaks to us through his word. That's how we have a two-way dialogue with the Lord. If we want these things to happen, they're not going to happen through prayer only. They're going to happen because we go to God's word to hear from him. Here's another effective one that I've not had a lot of luck with. Suppose you take the Bible and put it on your forehead. This would be another funny thing here, but... Yeah, it doesn't work, okay? You don't, nothing goes from there. So there's only one thing that really works. By making a conscious, deliberate choice of your will to pick up the Bible and read, study, and meditate on it. 
Asking the Lord to open your eyes to what he wants you to know and obey. Okay, so you do all these things. What's one key result? It says it's delight in God's word. How does this happen? It does not happen without a conscious decision to read God's word. Alex Souter, a great theologian I know, we were having a discussion about this the other day, and we decided that the more we read the Bible, the more it delights us. It is like an automatic reaction or result, not something we have to conjure up. There is a logical parallel with knowing God as he really is. We struggle to love a God of our imaginations, but the more we know God as he really is, the more we automatically love him. The same thing is true about his word. The more we understand his word, the more we love it. Here's another thing that causes tremendous delight. Our current society is full of lies and built on lies. Some of these things will shock you, I know. Politicians lie, the media lies, advertisers lie, university professors lie, teachers in public schools lie, false teachers and preachers lie. One delight we have in America is the absolute truth of God's word. Truth, really, right in this day and age, truth is so sweet, and we have access to absolute truth from God, and so it's like we want to say, your word, O oh God, is truth, and we are delighted to have it. Let's look at another righteous plea in verse 36. Can we read this one together? Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Okay, so there's some kind of conflict going on here. Okay. Is it wrong to make money? The answer to that would be no. What type of gain are we looking at in this verse? Well, it would be selfish gain to consume it on ourselves. Let's have some think about questions here. If we are more interested in making money than knowing God's word, what does that tell us about our priorities? More importantly, what does it say to the Lord? If we are more skilled at making money than skillfully handling God's word, what does that tell us about our priorities? And even more importantly, what does it say to the Lord? If we prioritize God and his word by reading, studying, and meditating on those things more than making money to indulge ourselves, what will automatically happen? Will our priorities change? Yeah. From an eternal perspective, is that a good thing? Can you take money to heaven from here? Do you take your godly character from here to heaven? Yeah. Do you think? Do you take the things that you did for God's glory here into heaven? Yeah. It might make eternal things a pretty high priority. Let's look at another righteous plea. Let's read this one together. Turn your eyes from looking at 
worthless things and give me life in your ways. That should say, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Okay, this one is kind of convicting. It was for me. Worthless things are things that have no eternal value, no glorify the Lord. In our society, men of God have easy access to look at all kinds of worthless things in total privacy. One obvious way our hearts are corrupted is through our eyes. The evil one uses a wide variety of worthless things to attract, distract our attention from God-honoring things like the Bible. And the sinful flesh that we still have with us desires to cooperate. If the psalmist felt the pull before television and internet, how much more do we feel that same pull today? We could look at this verse and conclude, God says, do not look at worthless things. That is a right conclusion, but it does not convey the bigger picture. There is more behind the command as it pertains to our love for the Lord. Consider this parallel. Worry is a sin. We are commanded not to worry. What is the foundational reason worry is a sin? It is really not about what worry does to us. When we worry, we are saying to God and demonstrating to others that he cannot be trusted with our situation. Is God trustworthy by his own declaration? Can we say amen? Amen. Like men, like real men? Amen. Amen. Yeah, he is trustworthy. Okay, and so if we think he's not, and by worrying we demonstrate to others that we think he's not, what have we done with the Lord's glory? Well, we have dishonored it. When we worry, we are insulting the Lord we love and maligning his impeccable character. We are thinking things about him and portraying things about his character that are not true. Does that put worry in a different light? Is worry a bigger deal than we might have originally thought? Likewise, when we look at worthless things while ignoring God's word, we are saying to the Lord that we prefer such things over his word in him. It grieves him when we prefer to look at worthless things. The question we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with that? I'd like to tell you that things are going to get a little less convicting, but we're not there yet. Let's look at verse 38. It's another righteous plea. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. We might tend to think that the promises in the Bible are for others, but not us. As a teacher in my ABF, I... Oh, you know, for years I tell people, you know, here's these promises, we need to claim them, you know, and I look at that and I think, yeah, the Lord will bless them just like he says they will. 
problem I have sometimes is believing that would he really bless me that same way? And I got the feeling that's what the psalmist is thinking to confirm to your servant your promise. Because sometimes, maybe because we know ourselves too well, we think, oh no, God would bless you guys, but nah, not me. And so that's not what God's word says. And so I think one of the things the psalmist is asking for is for those same promises to, to be real to him. What happens when we spend time in God's word and trust all that it says about the Lord as your relationship with us? One of the things it does, it increases our reverence for him. This verse is feared. That's another word for reverence. You don't get that from only prayer and you don't get that from not reading God's word and you don't get it from looking at worthless things. Will this happen from only talking to God in prayer? No. This is a time when we need to hear God speak to us through his word and we need to take those promises to heart. Let's look at another righteous plea in verse 39. Let's read this one together. Turn away your, the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Okay. So in the psalmist society, just like in our society, godly people are mocked and ridiculed, either directly or indirectly, for our obedience to and trust in the God of the universe. It is not pleasant to be ridiculed, especially for believing and doing what is right. Sometimes in the midst of such ridicule, we could lose sight of the bigger picture. So the question is, what is the bigger picture? Anytime we're being ridiculed, mocked, ignored, any of those things that happen... We need to recognize that there are always two audiences. Both audiences are real, but they have totally opposite perspectives. One audience can be seen with our physical eyes and heard with our physical ears. This group is on earth filled with followers of the evil one. They are mocking and ridiculing us and the Lord. The second audience is also real, but it is in heaven. It can only be seen by us through eyes of faith. Jesus and his angels are observing the same situation. Here's their response. They are smiling, cheering, loving every minute of our faithfulness and obedience. Does knowing that our faithfulness in difficult circumstances is at that very moment, happening right before the Lord, and at that very moment, pleasing the Lord, change everything. Can we say amen to that one? Amen. amen. Let's look at another righteous plea. There's just a boatload of these, as you see. Verse 40. Let's read this one together. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. 
Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. So we have the psalmist asking for some stuff. Give me. But these are not like selfish things. These are God-honoring requests. Give me an abundant life serving the Lord. What are a few elements of an abundant life? Well, an abundant life gives honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. An abundant life has meaning and purpose. An abundant life is concerned with eternal matters and reaps eternal rewards. Give me your steadfast love. Give me your promised salvation both now and in eternity. Give me godly answers to hard questions from my adversaries and also would be from the Lord's adversaries. And give me your truth. So if we ask for all those things like the psalmist did, what has to be our response? Willing obedience, trust in your character and your word, and a settled trust in your word both now and for the future. Let's look at another noble intention. We're getting toward the end here. This is verse 44 to 48. Let's read this one together. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Okay, we've been meditating for the last half hour or so. So let's see what this section tells us. So here are some of his noble intentions. I will obey continually until my life is over. I will seek your truth and believe and obey it. I will give accurate testimony of who you are. I will love your word and find my delight in it. I will seek more and more truth about you. I will meditate on your word, not just casually read it and move on. There's an interesting reference here in verse 45. It talks about a wide place. And some other translations use the word freedom or liberty. What kind of freedom or liberty will the psalmist experience from continually obeying God's word? He will and we will experience freedom from the constraints of a sinful life. We will experience freedom from bondage to sin. We will experience liberty from the consequences of sin. We will experience freedom from a conscience that is free from guilt. 
will have the freedom to enjoy unhindered fellowship with the Lord. Have you ever noticed that when you are in God's word and walking on obedience to him, that there is a lightness in your heart and a sense of wholeness in your soul? This must be some of what the psalmist is talking about when he says the wide place. Charles Spurgeon, who knows a little bit about this psalm, he made a comment about the wide place. He said, the way of holiness is not a track for slaves, but the king's highway for free men, men who walk in obedience. Spurgeon seems to be picturing a narrow, twisting, difficult-to-navigate path walked by slaves to sin and contrasting that with a wide, well-paved highway that is easily walked by the king's obedient followers. The question before us is, which path do we prefer? So how do we want to end this evening? Don't say, sit down so we can get out of here. That's an unacceptable answer. What I'm thinking we ought to do, because this psalm just drives us to uh, read it, study it, and apply it, and live it. And so I'm thinking we should all bow our heads and close our eyes so that we can have a private conversation with the Lord. Tonight we have been prompted by the Holy Spirit to consider the wonders of the Bible. We have seen righteous pleas by the psalmist, noble God-honoring intentions by the psalmist, and have seen the delights that come from such obedience. The Holy Spirit has been speaking personally and lovingly to each one of us. Let's just quietly take a few minutes and tell the Lord what we intend to do with what he's told us tonight. We want to freely give our lives um, totally to him. Uh, We want to give you, all of us, and our hearts, our minds, our wills, our bodies. Lord, please teach us to guide us and direct us and enable us and empower us and equip us to love your word and to love you like the psalmist did. And Father, we know that that will require some action on our part. And so we pray that we will indeed follow through, that we might walk in this wide place that the psalmist talked about and that we might represent you well in this world and so that when we go into the next world, it will just be an easy little Stroll because we will have been living in total dependence and obedience to you. So, Father, we ask that you would grant these requests, not first and foremost for us, but first and foremost for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we owe everything. And then secondarily, Father, that we would live for him. We praise you, we thank you, we glorify you in his name. Amen.